This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Critical Theory. My name is Austin Mitchell, and I'm co-host of this channel with Dave O'Brien. We're here today to discuss with Dr. Bonnie Mann her new book, Sovereign Masculinity, Gender Lessons from the War on Terror. Welcome, Dr. Mann. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. Yes, it's, uh, it's great to be with you as well. And I have to say um, that I really enjoyed your work, and I'm very excited to be discussing it with you today. Thank you. So before we get into the book itself, I was wondering if you'd be willing to uh, share some information about your background, maybe how you came to be interested in feminism, and maybe the the role that this book plays in your overall work. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Um, well, uh, my name is Bonnie Mann. I'm an associate professor of philosophy uh, in the philosophy department at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon. I'm also happen to be chair of the philosophy department right now. Um, and I uh, actually came to the study of philosophy uh, in, through feminist activism more than anything. I started out as a philosophy student as an undergraduate and was at the same time doing activist work on campus and experienced a lot of the disgruntlement that uh, women normally experience in activist context. And then uh, was assigned a feminist article by a wonderful philosophy professor, and it started to make the world make sense for me. So that was when I was 19. That was a very long time ago. Um, this current book uh, is a book that came out of my effort to make sense of the the way that gender messages were circulating, the way that they were being deployed in the so-called war on terror. So immediately after 9-11-2001, the way that the events were talked about were immediately gendered and in kind of strange and uh, intense ways. So a lot of feminists were trying to figure out, well, what was that that about? Um, My own philosophical commitments Coming from phenomenology, what I, the kind of philosophy I do, I call political phenomenology. And, um, for me, that means trying to make sense of the political world as experience and event. Um, so both taking seriously sort of the individual experience of, uh, of citizens or, uh, subjects in a political space and trying to make sense of political events more broadly. And then even more importantly, trying to make sense of the connections between those. Yeah. Well, since you, since you brought it up, I was, 
curious if maybe you could expand a little bit on this notion of political phenomenology. Uh, in my experience, phenomenology um, has to do with a certain kind of uh, bracketing of the world and sort of trying to get at the um, the essential aspects of universal human experience. And I was wondering what what what's going on when we talk about political <laughs> phenomenology. <laughs> yeah, why, is that, why isn't that a contradiction in terms, in other words? I think right. it's what you're asking me. Um, mm-hmm. Well, certainly in the tradition of classical phenomenology, it's absolutely true what you say. There is a, a aspiration to bracket the empirical world and to get underneath it to the structures, the universal structures of human experience. But there are moments in the phenomenological tradition that are quite distinct from that um, and that understand themselves quite differently. Uh, My own work is very rooted in the work of Simone de Beauvoir, who was trained in classical phenomenology. She was a reader of Husserl and Heidegger, for example. But at the same time, her post-World War II um, position in France where she had been absolutely shaken by the events of the Nazi occupation of her country uh, made her want something else from philosophy. It made her want a philosophy that, as she put it, could bite into the world. So she, Mm. like many of her generation, sought what was called concreteness, was uh, an effort to do philosophy that was relevant because for for this generation what they they felt betrayed by philosophy in a sense because when events overtook them the philosophy they had studied had not, was was absolutely helpless in the face of of actual political events so Beauvoir and others began to transform phenomenological practice this is what i argue anyway and this is a disputed point in Beauvoir scholarship let me just acknowledge that but um <laughs> to transform phenomenological practice into something that can actually address the world. I consider Hannah Arendt another figure from that generation who made the same move, in a sense, uh, and initiated a practice of political phenomenology where instead of bracketing the empirical world, we conduct our inquiries in the midst of it and in terms of it, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. It it absolutely makes sense, and that's uh, definitely a point that um, I think is one of the, definitely the strong suits of your book is is um, your interesting take on on Beauvoir. So before we uh, get into the book too deeply, though, I wanted to address the title uh, "Sovereign Masculinity." What's of course, I mean, masculinity is a pretty familiar term. What mm-hmm. what is the word "sovereign" doing there in that title? Yeah, um, that's something that came to me as I was writing, actually. I didn't um, sort of set out with the title in mind or the, the concept of sovereign masculinity in mind. I set out to figure out what was happening, uh, and in the midst of that effort, uh, the term sovereign masculinity sort of emerged in the process of the work. Um, part of it is an effort to place this work in the context of studies of political sovereignty. And... Um, Studies of political sovereignty, especially in the context of empire, uh, and I'm thinking of Hart and Negri right now, who's very, you know, sort of groundbreaking book on empire, was an effort to say, how does empire work under conditions of postmodernism? But in that work and in many other works that are addressing um, either American exceptionalism or kinds of political sovereignty that seem to be uh, harmful and, and uh, dangerous, 
there is almost never a discussion of gender. It's as if gender has nothing to do with it. And this strikes me as fundamentally short-sighted and wrong. It is even probably a kind of ignorance that's reproducing itself very actively. Because if you look at the phenomenon of sovereignty, as it expresses itself, as it manifests itself, as it appears to us, it is gendered through and through. And uh, the way that sovereignty is articulated, that's certainly in the American context, is deeply gendered. Um, and so I think that if we don't notice that, we probably have to work pretty hard uh, to not notice it or to keep that uh, that reality repressed. So by titling the book Sovereign Masculinity, I wanted to put this you know, feminist inquiry into the nature of gendered existence, also in the context of those political inquiries into the nature of sovereignty, to show that masculinity, certain kinds and forms of masculinity are part and parcel of, they are central structuring elements of political sovereignty as we imagine it, um, particularly in the context of the United States, which is you know, the book is really limited to a discussion of U.S. American politics. It may have ramifications beyond that, um, but I, I don't uh, assume that it does. Right. In your introduction, you draw attention to uh, the relationship between national sovereignty, as you say, and masculinity. And there seems to be a juxtaposition there in the title of the, the political realm and, and gender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially gender as lived um, in the most sort of visceral, personal, embodied way by individual people. Um, because I want to say, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about gender as if it is divorced from what we think of as gender identity. So when we say a gender in our own contemporary context, what we think of immediately is sort of something that people claim for themselves or a way that people live. And um, I think that meaning of gender is really important, uh, but it's easy to talk about that level or dimension of gendered existence as if it were disconnected from other dimensions of gendered existence, including the life of gender in the imaginary domain, the life of gender in language, the life of gender in the nation more broadly. And so part of juxtaposing those terms in the title is trying to force us to think these different levels of human existence together and wonder why it is that gender crosses between them and perhaps even forms a central part of the structure that allows us to move between those different dimensions of human existence. So are you claiming then that uh, gender is an essential aspect of what, what brings people together into nations? Uh, I certainly or in, am claiming. Or I'm certainly claiming that it's a central aspect of what brings us together as a nation here and now. Um, so again, I, I want to be cautious and somewhat uh, circumspect about uh, making broad claims that would be generalizable across time and and space. Um, I, but at the same time, I don't want to assume that this is something unique about the U.S. American experience right now. I think there are unique features to gendered existence in the U.S. now. Um, but uh, I, because I because of the methodology that I use, a political phenomenology, I have to enter through the phenomenon. I have to enter through the events. Um, I have to engage the inquiry from that perspective. So that's immediately beginning with a sort of local reality. Um, right. And then again, 
of course, I don't want to uh, prematurely circumscribe that and say it's only ever local and it never has implications beyond its own context. But it does have a context, and that's very important to to the inquiry. It has a historical context and a geographical context. Right. Now, I wanted to discuss one of the first concepts that you draw into the text is this notion that gender has ontological weight. Could you explain what that means? Sure. And this is a term that um, uh, every reader of the book so far <laughs> seems to really want to interrogate, and I think there's good reason for that. <laughs> um, so... So we're used to there being two paradigms of gender, right, uh, as it's lived by individual persons. One paradigm says gender is something substantive. It's rooted in your bodily morphology or uh, hormonal uh, makeup. It's something that is substantively connected to a biological reality. That's sort of the old-fashioned, um, what most progressives think of as the bad account of gender. And then... Right. You know, over and against that, we have the social constructionist account of gender that in its worst formulations, okay, there, there are better and worse formulations, but in its worst formulations, it tends to articulate the meaning of gender as something that's light, playful, uh, changeable. It can be um, sort of put on and taken off. And this, this is uh, a sort of popular reading of the performative account of gender that emerges out of a social constructionist framework. Th right. That's not a necessary feature of a social constructionist framework, that you have to see gender as something light and playful and malleable, um, easy to transform or transition. But what I'm trying to do is to say that gender has, um, gender accrues a reality in the life of individual people that is absolutely central to their sense of their own existence, to their sense of their place in a community with others, to their sense of um, uh, what their duties and responsibilities are as a person, and to their sense of their worth as a person. So one of the things I argue is that gender is a process of justification. Now, what that means is on the, on the most individual developmental level is that as we're growing up into gender, Part of what determines uh, for us how we understand our worth or our worthlessness as persons is how we're able to enact certain gender norms. Um, and so gender has a relation to evaluation, to status in our interpersonal world um, in the sense that it, as in Beauvoir's language, justifies our existence. It's part of what justifies our existence, we could say. So, um, right, so it becomes heavy, it becomes heavy, to get back to the term ontological weight, um, because it anchors our existence in um, a community with others, in the imaginary domain, and even in the material world that we inhabit. That means you can't just undo it, right? You can't just throw it off. Now, maybe there are moments when you kind of can. But I think for most of us, a lot of the time, gender is heavy in that it's it's a real center or anchor of meaning in our lives and of our sense of worth or worthlessness or uh, status as individual people. Right. Now, what I took you to be doing in part of the book is trying to position yourself between these two uh, sort of typical notions of gender, one where it's, it's simply a sort of, um, it's very light and malleable, and another where it's rooted um, in certain biological or maybe even like divinely um, 
ensured, you know, atemporal kind of norms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say in between because definitely what I'm not trying to do is sort of mix the two and then come out with uh, with something that, that is a hybrid. Um, I think... Uh, well, but on the other hand, there's a, you know, there's some legitimacy into saying it's in between and, and legitimacy in this sense. I believe that gen, that gender anchors itself, gender sediments into the body, into embodied existence. So the body is going to be absolutely important to how it's lived. Um, that's different than saying the body determines how gender is lived. Uh, but I don't, uh, want, along with most feminist phenomenologists, I see the body as an absolutely um, important aspect of the living of gender. Now, that can sometimes be read as a sort of biological determinism. It's actually not that. It's just an acknowledgement that the biological body is is our way of having a world. And so that is going to be really important in terms of how gender is lived for each individual subject. On the other hand, um, I see the meanings that accrue and that sediment into the body as social meanings so that the ontological weight of gender is acquired over time through a developmental process, through a process of acquisition, through a process of engaging the imaginary domain, uh, et cetera, that it sediments over time. And so it is constructed or constituted in that sense, um, but it's lived as as real, as having an ontological weight in the life of individual people. And the way that we discover that unfortunately, is when the gendered existence of someone comes under a specific kind of attack. Uh, that's one way that we discover it. So in the book, I open the book with a citation from a man who was tortured, sexually tortured by U.S. American operatives and who describes that sexual torture as a kind of shattering. And right. um, this is where we see that gender has ontological weight because its undoing is the self's undoing, especially in moments of particularly uh, brutal forms of sexual violence. I especially uh, enjoyed your uh, interpretation of Beauvoir, and it seems to me, although of course you can correct me on this, that uh, you were taking her to describe a position uh, quite like the one you just described, where um, gender is neither a substantive uh, thing or a social construction per se, but has a certain kind of uh, solidity to it, perhaps, or maybe there would be a better way to describe that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's my interpretation of Beauvoir. Um, And, you know, there are wildly different interpretations of Beauvoir on this issue. Um, People read her as being... um, a biological essentialist uh, on the one hand, and people read her as having completely dismissed biology on the other hand. So uh, there's a, there are a very broad range of readings. I, I myself think that these paradoxical and contradictory readings emerge out of the um, ambiguity of the text, and that ambiguity is Beauvoir's philosophical method. Right, so she is constantly trying to work between uh, embodied existence and social meaning or, or social consciousness, uh, and to see the linkages between them. I think um, 
she thinks that that's what a human being is. It's precisely that space between um, being uh, a body caught in relations of causality and being, uh, well, she would put it, uh, at least in her early work, a consciousness who is uh, free. Right, so that's right. that's sort of the existentialist moment in Beauvoir. It gets much more complicated in a second sex, where she's constantly working in this this mode of ambiguity, and encouraging us to embrace and dwell in the amb- ambiguity, trying rather than trying to resolve it all the time. Right. Yeah, and that's definitely a point that you uh, approach in the text. I uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on a section early on in the book. I just want to quote here really fast. You say, I will argue that far from simply contesting manhood in its sovereign form, the postmodern pastiche of gender often enables and empowers it. The hybridity of gender and the rigidity of gender work together into the constitution of the sovereign superpower's power. How, how does this end up being substantiated and played out in the book. Yeah, um, well, this, of course, is one of the hardest things to grapple with uh, because when you when you examine, when you inquire into the way that gender is deployed in the war on terror, uh, and I do that through reading various um, texts, right? So whether documents Mm -hmm. from the Pentagon or um, films or images that are prevalent in the culture at a particular time, when you really pay attention to how gender functions, you see this real gender fundamentalism at work. It's this old-fashioned, very um, uh, archaic almost notion of manhood and womanhood that we think that we're far beyond, right, as a, as a nation, as a people, as a culture. We think that except in certain sort of right-wing enclaves, we have overcome this notion of gender. But there it is, right, um, emerging over and over again in the, in the context of U.S. American nationalism and patriotism. Right. On the other hand, how do we imagine ourselves as a nation, particularly over and against our imaginary Muslim enemy, Right. Uh, we imagine ourselves as a nature, as a nation, as as really progressive when it comes to gender relations, when it comes to sexuality. Here we have, you know, gay marriage laws um, being passed in state after state. Here we have, um, you know, uh, women achieving in higher education, far outstripping men, even at the level of the master's and PhD uh, degrees awarded as of a few years ago, women actually surpassed men in um, the number of PhDs. So so we imagine ourselves to be a profoundly sort of enlightened and sexually progressive and tolerant nation. The thing is that when we conduct our business abroad, especially in the context of the wars on terror, um, that that self-concept of ourselves as a progressive nation is actually part and parcel of what makes the sexualized torture work in the way that it does or, or what enables the sexualized torture. So what happens to Muslim prisoners in U.S. custody who are undergoing these um, uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, as they're called, what happens is that one of the ways to break them 
is to expose them supposedly to this progressive Western culture. In other words, to hang pornographic pictures all over their bodies, to have female interrogators. Um, I mean, the, the technical term for the strategy is invasion of space by female. That's actually a tech, technical military interrogation strategy. Uh, with, mm. That's its name. <laughs> and, you know, having female interrogators push their breasts into the prisoner's face and straddle them and, um, and et cetera. And, you know, this is sort of in the, in the name of this enlightened, progressive sexual culture uh, over and against the backward, uh, sexually repressed uh, Muslim other that we imagine, right, that we've made up. Um, right. And uh, so, but what's happening in the torture is just traditional sexual violence. That's what's happening. And so these two things are absolutely working together, working hand in hand. And our image as this progressive nation was part of what justified, especially in Afghanistan, the entry into the war in the first place. We were going to go and free the oppressed Muslim women in Afghanistan. Now we could ask, did we do that, right? Um, <laughs> apparently not. Apparently that's not what happened, but that was the justification. Laura Bush gave a speech right as the war was beginning on that Thanksgiving. She gave a speech in which she took on the mantle of the American feminist, saying we were going to go in and intervene. And, and in the situation in Afghanistan, don't get me wrong, was horrendous for women. Right. Absolutely horrendous. But the women who were fighting against that internal, internally to Afghanistan, the women who had been organizing for years and had put their lives on the line, who had been tortured, who had been um, assassinated because of their resistance efforts against that regime, those women were absolutely excluded from the negotiating table the minute the U.S. took power. Nobody wanted to hear what they had to say, which is a clear indication that this idea that we were going to liberate women was simply a kind of subterfuge. But you see how the progressive sexual identity that the nation claims for itself works hand in hand with this sort of old-fashioned masculinist uh, protectionism and, um, and what I call sovereignty. Right. Would you say that this uh, self-image that we have of ourselves as a sexually progressive society is uh, a projection, then, of some kind? Do you mean, is it made up? Uh, yeah, more or less. Okay. Is, is, it a kind of, is it a kind of front, for instance? Um, was, it, was it a kind of ruse that we took, it, we took um, to use in our... Like, Do we appropriate it, in other words, in order to justify our wars abroad, for example? <laughs> Yeah, certainly the last way you put it, I would agree with, um, that right. uh, it's appropriated in order to enhance this project of justification. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's simply, you know, it's not simply a lie, right? Um, uh, there are uh, uh, a lot of things that we can point to as positive in terms of gender equality, in terms of um, rights for sexual minorities, et cetera, in the U.S. So, so those aren't just completely fabricated. There's something real about that. But what we don't recognize is that 
those very uh, phenomena have their underside that is this incredible, um, well, I keep calling it gender fundamentalism, but uh, incredible sexism, let's just call it that, uh, and in the traditional sense that is still alive and well at the very same place and in the very same time as these progressive narratives. So just to give a mundane example, we have this extraordinary phenomenon in our country of women's success in higher education that I mentioned earlier. At the Mm -hmm. same time, we have this extremely high rates of sexual assault on college campuses. So um, uh, that women who enter college are very likely to be sexually assaulted while while they're there. Um, we have this progressive military policy where now, and you know, this was sort of a bit, as I was finishing the book, it happened that women were uh, officially admitted to combat positions. It seems like a very right. progressive policy. At the same time, women who are in the military are subjected to such levels of sexual violence and sexual harassment that their PTSD more often has to do with sexual violence than it has to do with combat combat stress. Hmm. But women experience levels of PTSD that rival those of men who have been in combat. So those things exist in this strange um, relation to one another in the same place, in the same time, and somehow we hold this paradox together in our heads as if it's not a paradox, but in fact it's a it's a deeply self-contradictory identity or culture that we live in, um, and it's hard to recognize it. Yeah, I certainly would agree with that. Now, as far as your notion of gender, you have two different um, sort of elements that you you bring together with it. One is the uh, social imaginary, and the other is the operations of language. And, yeah, could you expand on those a little bit? Sure. Yeah, the way I think of it is actually that there are four dimensions, um, and and probably there are more, but uh, there are four dimensions that, in the midst of my inquiry, sort of demanded to be addressed. The first dimension we've already talked quite a bit about is that uh, deep reality of gender in the lived, embodied existence of individual people which I talk about through the notion of style. Um, That's a notion that comes out of phenomenology. Uh, As a way of trying to say what gender is in the body of a person, I use that notion of style. Um, But gender also exists in the imaginary domain. In other words, it helps me understand what my relationship is to others, particularly others that I may not have even met. It it helps me understand what my place is in my community and in in the broader world. Um, It helps me understand what the social expectations are that attach to notions of uh, status or notions of worth or worth, worthlessness, worthiness or worthlessness. Uh, so in the imaginary domain, gender is absolutely um, structuring the social imaginary in which we, we exist and in which we try and figure out how to live with other people. Um, but gender is also a key structure of language and um in the book, I, I enter that conversation about how gender structures language through um, looking at a memoir of a, an American soldier in Iraq, um, Kayla Williams, who was one of the first women that was deployed 
on the front lines in Iraq. She often worked with all male units where she was the only woman. Um, and she really, in her memoir, talks about being in a struggle with language, trying to find a language that has a name for her, that has a place for her. Um, and, you know, her her constant conflict is that in the military, she is told in sort of the joking rapport that is part of military life that if you're a woman in the military, you're either a bitch or a whore. And uh, right. so she talks about that a lot and talks about trying to find her place in a language that only has those two places for her. So uh, so gender is an absolutely a, a structuring feature of our language. And, of course, language is a structuring feature of our existence in that sense. So I try and give an account of that. And then the fourth dimension um, is the dimension of the apparatus. So uh, one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book was emphasize the material relations of power that are at work and that are at stake in the war on terror. So, for example, I refer to the war on terror as a money laundering operation and in which uh, public monies are being transferred into private hands through the vehicle of the uh, private contract. So the military, the, the contractors that contracted with the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan were major corporations that became very, very, very rich. Uh, not as a result so much of oil. You know, a lot of people say the war was about oil, and not that it wasn't about that. But there was a much more direct way for these companies to make a lot of money, and that was to um, have these very lucrative contracts with the U.S. with the U.S. government, in which U.S. taxpayers' money was handed over to corporations. Um, and I, I see that as what the war on terror was really about, in a sense. And I see gender as something that made that possible. So these material relations of power are also key to how gender works and how gender functions. And that's the fourth dimension that I try to maintain um, always in view in the course of the analysis. Mm -hmm. How does gender relate to the apparatus which you just mentioned about the, um, the siphoning of public money to corporations? What, what does gender have to do with that? Well, that's two things to do with that, in in my view. And, of course, you know, we never – the story is never completely told. There's always room for more thinking about it. But but from what I can see so far in my inquiries, um, it has two things to do with it. One, it operates as justification so that um, a, a proud democratic people is robbed in the course of – the U.S. war on terror, or that's the way I see it. How does that happen? How is that? Okay, so how do we how do we give our money to these corporations? Uh, and the corporations do very little with it, or they certainly don't do what they promise to do. They don't. The contracts are not fulfilled. The buildings that they build don't work. The you know the boats don't float, et cetera, et cetera. This is all very well documented. Right. And yet we continue to hand over our money. And so for me, the question is, how does that happen? And in fact, that's one of the sort of motivating questions for the book is how, I mean, this is what is called in text after text, American stupidity, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there are, <laughs> you know, multiple books that have titles that have the word stupid in them, uh, in which the phenomenon of Americans 
going along with things that are absolutely against our own material interest, seemingly without much thought and seemingly without moral qualms, um, is that's what's being thematized in those texts. So, so my question is, okay, so if there's this phenomenon of American stupidity, and, you know, we could call it something else, but that's what it's being called by, by scholars. If there's this phenomenon of American stupidity, how is it produced? How does it work? Mm-hmm. And I argue that masculinity is a key uh, structure of its production and our commitment to a certain kind of masculinity that I call sovereign masculinity actually undermines our cognitive capacities, our abilities to do considered, reasoned calculation about uh, events. It, it undermines our moral capacity for concern for other people, and it also turns us against our own material interests. So so um, our, that's one way that masculinity is entangled with this uh, this robbery, this world historic robbery, is that we we are a people who have been turned against our own material interests through our seduction and uh, our fascination with our inculcation and our embeddedness in these structures of sovereign masculinity. That's the argument right. on the one hand. Mm-hmm. The other hand, the very way that capital structures its um, itself in the contemporary world. Um, uh, and Naomi Klein has done a beautiful job of outlining this in her book, Disaster Capitalism, that I draw on a lot in my own work. Um, the way that capital functions actually shares the central structures of sovereign masculinity, um, the most important of which is uh, it is a self-justifying structure. So uh, capital justifies itself on the basis that it makes capital, right? That money makes money. This is why, uh, that's all we need to know. There doesn't need to be mm-hmm. any other sort of value check on that process. Um, so that's kind right. of how capitalism works now. And Naomi Klein has outlined that beautifully. And that structure is actually the same structure that we see at work in sovereign masculinity. So that's the second way that masculinity is related to um, the apparatus of production that goes into gear around the war on terror. Right. Now, I wanted to draw really quickly on the first way that you described that this uh, relates to the our current political structures. At one point in the book, you address this common conception of uh, man or men as embodying reason and this sort of stereotype of women as embodying uh, you know, emotion and sort of all the all the connotations that kind of go with that, and the way that that's different than the American concept of masculinity. Yeah, it took me a long time to realize this because um, you know there have been decades of feminist work tracing the historical associations between masculinity and reason, especially in philosophy, of course. Mm-hmm. So for decades, feminists have been saying, you know, uh, that manhood and reason are linked in our in our imaginary domain. They're linked in our historical uh, documents. They're linked in the structures of, of thought even. So, but that kept grading against sort of what I looked around me and saw. And, um, because in the American context, masculinity is not really associated with um, 
this sort of superior cognitive functioning that we associate with reason in its highest form at all, masculinity is much more associated with instinct, with with a sort of embodied power, with action without thinking or deliberation. And so I had to I had to try and give an account of why. What what is it in the American context that makes this association with reason uh, undermines this association between masculinity and reason? So I had to write a chapter on on history in order to to do that and draw on the work of Gail Biederman, who traces very carefully in American history when the moment was when masculinity became disassociated from reason. Um, And uh, she does that very convincingly, so I draw on that in the work. But um, this was actually a criticism I got from one of the anonymous reviewers from Oxford University Press when I turned in the first draft. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> we have, you know, all this feminist work that says masculinity and reason are associated, and now you're saying that masculinity is associated with unreason. So I had to go back and kind of trace the history of that and, and try and show why that was. Right. When I when I first uh, read the book, I actually did have that objection myself, to be honest with you. Um, but, but after considering your work, it actually appears almost um, just drawing on my experience living in the United States, um, there is quite a bit of anecdotal sort of evidence and and even in my own experience, sort of this, this concept of masculinity that's no longer really rooted in reason or in higher cognitive functions. So. Yeah, I mean, if you even think, again, of a mundane example, uh, like empirical work that studies the behavior of college students right now shows that women do their homework way more often than men do, for example. Um, it shows that, you know, to be sort of a good student up on your classes, et cetera, is considered feminine. Um, and, uh, and women get higher grades than men do in college. Women also receive more academic honors than men do. And again, as of 2010, men, uh, excuse me, women receive more degrees even at the PhD level. It's been that way for a long time at the bachelor's level, but at the PhD level, women have now surpassed men. So we definitely live in a culture where um, being studious or thoughtful or cognitively engaged is is feminized. Um, and to be a man that's too who is too intellectual is already to be feminized in a in a certain way. And there are all kinds of sort of cultural examples um, in that point to that. But what's scary is how that then works to justify a certain thoughtlessness on the national level. Um, where, you know, a president who acts without deliberation, without consultation with international allies, is a president who's acting in a manly fashion. I mean, interestingly, if you look at how people talk about Putin right now, um, they and his, you know, invasion of Crimea and his uh, sort of posturing toward, uh, toward the Ukraine, they, especially on the right wing you know, side of things, but um, in general, people talk about Putin as this very manly leader. Why? He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. 
He doesn't seem to think too much before he acts. He doesn't need to uh, sort of consult with people and figure out what the best course of action is. It's, it's really quite a strong association. Um, now, I do argue that it gets replaced by something, and what it gets replaced by is mere technical skill. So the ability to blow things up, for example, becomes very important, um, or to, you know, use certain kinds of weapons or machines. Sure. Yeah, I I did want to uh, to um, ask for your clarification a little bit on one sort of uh, aspect of that, and that is the way in which our notions of masculinity as uh, gender for individuals gets transplanted uh, to the national level and how those two things interact? Um, well, that's sort of the project of the whole book is to try and say, <laughs> try and say how that <laughs> well, okay, happens. Right, right. Um, but, uh, um, and maybe transplanted isn't quite the right word. Uh, the way I try and talk about it is how do our our aspirations as a nation um, get their claws into the individual uh, identity structures of citizens so that citizens are motivated, for example, to go to war. Citizens are motivated to uh, support a war effort, even when everyone should know that it's based on lies. Right? So even after right. it was totally clear there were no weapons of mass destruction, right? This this came out in every newspaper, major newspaper in the world, and yet Americans persisted in not knowing that fact, um, <laughs> and, and that's an extraordinary accomplishment if you think about it, right? That's an extraordinary accomplishment that has to be rooted in some process of, of production. Um, so what I argue is that because of our own culture of masculinity in the U.S., where little boys are schooled in a certain kind of masculine identity um, and, and where that is celebrated in our culture, not without contestation and paradox and um, encounter modes of masculinity, of course, that that allows the, the nation at a particular moment um, of heightened nationalism, heightened patriotism, to link into those individual identity structures of um, of its citizens, and it's you know it's it's a it's a complex, multi-dimensional, imperfect process, right? So it doesn't mean that it's seamless. It doesn't mean the nation can just mobilize anyone at any time to do anything that it wants because of these structures of masculinity. It's more complicated than that. But um, but it does mean that it works well enough that right. the population is acquiescent in this world historic robbery. Right. Uh, and it seems to be integral to your notion of masculinity at the national level and your explanation of this fairly common stereotype of American stupidity uh, that the justification at work is pre-reflective and non-deliberative. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's actually a very important claim of the book um, because I, I'm, I'm arguing that this stuff happens on an embodied pre-reflective level. Uh, it's not something that we can't get a, a reflective grasp on, but that requires work. Um, but it's something that uh, shuts down our ability to think about the problem before we even start. Uh, it preempts um, sort of reflective deliberation on the problem. Uh, so that's a, a key argument of the book. The whole thing kind of hinges on that. I mean, if if that's not true, then there's no case to be made. Um, but I do think that uh, this claim is in line with a lot of what a lot of other folks have have been saying about how um, decisions happen on the national level, how citizens make decisions. But it seems that um, reflective deliberation is something that is itself preempted or shaped or curtailed by something that's happening at another level. Right. Now, if it's happening at a level before deliberation or before um, the notion of reason, perhaps, could come in, then how is it that, is it possible for us to to come to recognize it, first of all, and to do something about that? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, here I have written a book, right, which is a very sort of <laughs> cognitive activity. It's a, it's a, it's an act of conceptualization. And if I'm arguing that the problem is something that's happening on another dimension, then it could be that writing a book about it is, is absolutely, um, irrelevant, you know, because um, it's it's whatever change needs to happen needs to happen on some other level. So that's an open question for me, how much we can sort of get a cognitive grasp on this and how much of a difference that does or doesn't make. It may not actually make as much of a difference as we would hope, which would indicate that something has to happen on some other level, right? That um, mm-hmm. we need to look at this uh, at the level of the aesthetic first and foremost. Um, that means we need to look at the stories we tell, the image world that we live in, the cultures of the body that we um, we participate in, and and try and make interventions at that level. That's a very difficult thing to do, of course, right? Right. Um, but I think there are historic examples. So at one point in the book, I talk about the sort of aftermath of the Vietnam War in which there was a split in American um, narratives about what happened and what went wrong in Vietnam. And one of the narratives was, um, well, what went wrong was we were fighting with one hand tied behind our backs and they wouldn't let us win. And so that was one narrative. Um, the other narrative was, um, it was just a really bad, really wrong war that we were engaged in. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that side of the narrative also embraced a different aesthetic of masculinity. So if you think of that historic moment and the, you know, the the long-haired poet or the, um, you know, anti-war protester, it's a different aesthetic of, a mascul- of masculinity that carried with it a different sort of set of ethics and a different set of moral values that, that emerged and became, at least for a moment, not for very long, but at least for a moment, quite culturally powerful, sort of captured the imagination of the nation for a little while, or at least part of the nation. Um, right. So, so you know, I think that that aesthetic dimension of our political work 
probably needs a lot more attention than we tend to give it. Mm-hmm. Now, in that same passage of the book, you describe how after this new aesthetic of masculinity emerged, um, these more uh, traditional, maybe, narratives of manhood and masculinity uh, re-emerged. Is there, do you, what sort of uh, causal structures are at play, do you think, in the emergence of these different narratives? Or is there is there one thing in particular, or is it many things? I mean, I think it's many, many things, and, and it would always be really complicated to trace, right, uh, what those structures would be. I mean, certainly there is the sort of national experience of humiliation, uh, or at least the experience was read as an experience of humiliation of the, the loss. I mean, we lost the war. Vietnam War is a war that the United States lost, and we don't ever talk about it that way, but that's what happened. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, that is suffered as a humiliation um, by a nation that imagines itself to be incapable of losing, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that sort of uh, humiliation gets reworked in this sort of hyper-masculine um, imagery that emerges after the Vietnam War. The muscles get bigger, the guns get bigger, the, you know, uh, the figures of manhood just expand and expand. Um, so, you know, on the imaginary level, we could talk about something like that, of course. Um, but there's got to be so many other dimensions involved in, um, in that kind of historic moment that it, it really would take an entire study to try and trace exactly what all the dimensions are. I, I, I just definitely don't want to try and offer like a, some singular cause as an, as, you know, something that can explain any complex phenomenon like that. I think it's always multidimensional. Right. I mean, it seems like maybe, maybe, uh, the best advice here would be to take, uh, Beauvoir as describing the ambiguity between, um, you know, nature and the political as, as existing permanently for for everyone, and so there not being one particular sort of cause. Well, point. certainly that's the way that she works. You know, I mean, I just I just had a book session at the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy conference in New Orleans uh, about a week ago, and um, you know, one of the respondents said that I was a Foucauldian, um, which was funny. <laughs> But but also I understood the point, right, where, you know, what Foucault did was genealogy. Foucault mm-hmm. tried to say that there's no causal chain that can explain anything. There's always a complex mix of things that come together to um, uh, concretize or crystallize any one sort of historical formation. Um, and I think Beauvoir was very similar in a sense that uh, her way of, I mean, she's very different from Foucault in another way, so I, I didn't agree with the accusation that I was a Foucaultian, which was a positive accusation in that context. <laughs> but, um, but Beauvoir, in a sense, works in a very similar way. She's trying to trace sort of multiple vectors of uh, inheritance that um, give rise to certain moments in our history. And, you know, to some extent, I'm trying to do that, too, in the book. I'm trying to say, 
okay, here we came to this moment in history where this um, this sort of shocking event uh, occurred, right? We all watched it on our TV screens over and over and over again as the Twin Towers collapsed. So, th- so there's this event, and then what uh, sets up the the framework of possibility for how that event will be responded to? Right. Um, so, so much of what I'm doing in the book is trying to trace what set up the the possibility for us to react the way that we did uh, after 9/11. Yeah, the book certainly certainly read that way. Uh, in perhaps even in terms of a, a kind of genealogy or giving a, a multifaceted uh, account of this extremely complex phenomena. Yeah, well, I, I hope so because I think that's you know what we we have to have in these moments right. of of historical you know uh, complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the book overall was really interesting, and um, yeah, I just want to say it's a wonderful book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So now that uh, we're sort of winding down to the end of our interview, I was wondering, what sort of work are you doing now? Well, uh, the bad news is I'm chairing the Department of Philosophy, which means I'm answering a lot of emails. (laughs) It's it's, it's not conducive to very creative work. Um, Right. But I, I have a, a project on the horizon that is going to seem initially completely unrelated to this one, um, but I don't think that it is. And that is I'm, uh, I'm starting to think a lot about uh, the new uh, philosophical inquiries into human relationships to animals. Um, and I'm particularly thinking of it in terms of agriculture, the development of agriculture, uh, our our rootedness in agricultural societies, and in I mean in the U.S. Of course, we have to talk about that in terms of the settler state. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about um, our uh, treatment of male animals, and uh, so in factory farming, for example. So chickens are the most farmed animals on the planet. And mm-hmm. in uh, egg-producing breeds, what happens to the male animals? They are thrown immediately upon hatching in, onto a conveyor belt and into a grinder where they uh, disappear into probably dog food or something. Um, and, but I'm thinking longer term about what are the reverberations on humans' conceptions of gender, Mm. Um, that arise out of our agricultural history. And I don't have at all an answer to the question yet. It really is just (laughs) a question. So it's going to be a long time before I'm able to say anything very intelligent about it. But that is one of the things that I am thinking of now. Yeah. Well, that sounds extremely interesting. I will definitely look for that book when it comes out. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, don't look too soon because it won't be very fast, but maybe (laughs) 10 years from now. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, uh, again, thank you, Dr. Mann, for talking with me today. And again, the book is Sovereign Masculinity, Gender Lessons from the War on Terror. Thank you for having me on. 